You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Take your Bible, turn with me to 2 Chronicles, please, chapter number 7 this morning. 2 Chronicles, chapter number 7. If, uh, Robert, if you weren't sandwiched in that pew, I'd have you bring, you bring me those glasses and I'd wear them while I preached. I looked out while they were singing. He had 2023 across his face. I thought, man, he's, I like that. Yes, that's right. I like that. Party on, brother. I'll have church this morning. All right, Second Chronicles chapter number 7. We're going to read verse number 1 down through verse number 14. And I know it's familiar to you, but I think we'll read it all just so that we have the context and have the story here. And uh, it's a new year, a new start, new opportunities. The things are passed away, a lot ahead of us, and I don't know about you, but I'd like to see God do some great things. And I think God wants to, and I think God plans to, if we'll just get on board with God. Second Chronicles chapter number 7, verse number 1. Let's do this. Stand with me. I, need, I, think, I think I need to have you stand up. I was going to let you sit, but I, I'm getting discouraged. Stand up. All right. What's that song we do in chapel? We'll not do that. The, the calisthenics and everything. Verse number 1. Look with me. If your neighbor falls asleep, elbow him real hard, all right? Verse number one. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped. Sometimes we get on God's people for not worshiping. But maybe they'd worship if they saw God the way that we need to see God. After they saw God do what God can do, they didn't have any trouble worshiping Him. And they praised the Lord, saying, For He is God, for His mercy endureth forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, and King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 20 and 2,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God, and the priests waited on their offices. The Levites also with instruments of music of the Lord, which David the king had made to praise the Lord, because his mercy endureth forever when David praised by their ministry. And the priests sounded trumpets before them, and all Israel stood. Moreover, Solomon hallowed the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the brazen altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings and the meat offerings and the fat. They didn't just give what was expected, they gave abundantly. The altar couldn't even hold it. Also at the same time, Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great congregation, from the entering in of Hamath under the river of Egypt. And the eighth day they made a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days, and on the three and twentieth day of the seventh month, he sent the people away into their tents, glad and merry in heart for the goodness that the Lord had showed unto David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Thus Solomon finished, and I underline the word finished. He finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord. And in his own house, he prosperously effected. And we're going to read three more verses, but it's important to notice here. The Bible said in verse 11 that they had completed their task. For seven years, they labored, they planned, they gathered, they built, buzzing activity, co-laborers together to do that work of God, and now it's done. Let me say that possibly one of the most dangerous times in life is when you finish something. 
Because human tendency is when you finish something, then you coast and enjoy the fruit of what you finished. I heard a man say that if churches aren't constantly growing, they're dying. And if we don't constantly have some objective in front of us, we will die and not even realize that we're in the process of dying. I read that and thought, so what now? Was it satisfactory? Was that sufficient? Is that enough? They had done a great work. I mean, there's no construction like the temple on the face of the planet. But then immediately, when the Bible said Solomon had finished, God speaks to him. You see, God wasn't done. Look at verse number 12. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Now he begins to use a little conjunction. And I know it's way too early on New Year's Day to use that kind of a phrase. But conjunction, the word if. If means this, there is more to the story. It means that there is a reaction to an action. It binds performance to promise. He says, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and again, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God is saying this to Solomon. He's saying, you're finished, but I'm not finished. The temple is done, but I'm not done. I still have things ahead that I purpose to do. And it's bound together by this conjunction that binds performance to promise. And verse 13 is, if you sin, then I will judge you. There's more to the story. Verse 17, though, is if you repent, then I'll send revival. There is more to the story. For a little while this morning, I want to preach on this thought. If I know God, and by the way, all I know about God is what's in the Bible. But if I know God... He probably has some big things planned. Let's pray. God, I pray for your help today to preach. I pray for liberty. Give our people strength, energy to listen for maybe 25 minutes, whatever it is. But I pray we tune into heaven. Help us to have a measure of revival on this first service of the new year. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. America's at a crossroads. Wait, that's not the right statement. America has far surpassed the crossroad. I believe America is very far down the wrong pathway at the crossroads. She's spiritually bankrupt and morally depraved. She's educationally insane and culturally atheistic. Now we can look at that and declare that it's all over and get pessimistic like the majority of people seem to be, or we can ask ourselves the question, does all that mean that we should quit and coast on God and just kind of throw in the towel and call it a day? Or do you think God could still do something big in our generation? You see, I just believe the choir didn't sing a lie when they sang the song, He's Still on the Throne. And I think this morning, probably, God is still in charge. If you've ever seen a big fire burning, you've got to remember the big fire didn't have to start with a big load of wood. It just took a little spark and one small piece of lumber to get that thing burning. And we don't have to have a whole lot of hope or a whole lot of opportunity or a whole lot on our side to see God do great things. We just have to have somebody that will have faith in God and a desire to see God do big things in the days ahead. I said this on Wednesday, but I still believe it's true on Sunday. D.L. Moody made the statement, make your plans big, God is your partner. Now consider that if God be God as he's described in the scripture, that tells me that our possibilities are absolutely limitless. I feel sorry this morning for all the people in this world that worship idols. 
By the way, that doesn't just happen in foreign lands. That happens on every street in Santa Clara, California. When you bow down to an idol, you bow down to something that is as temporal as the one who is worshiping it. An idol cannot hear. An idol cannot see. An idol cannot answer prayer. An idol cannot meet needs. And an idol cannot save. You can see little idols hanging on necklaces. You see idols dancing on the dashboard of cars. You can find idols sitting in the landscapes of homes. You find idols on mantles and tucked away in shrines. People can wear their idols. They can display their idols. They can pick up their idol and place it on a shelf. Think about it. Idol worshipers worship a God so small they can literally carry their God around. They can move their God to wherever they want their God to be. Like Dagon in the Old Testament, if they're not careful, they might drop their God and break him to pieces. Now this morning, if we worshipped a hunk of wood or if we worshipped a carved piece of stone, if we were a bunch of idol worshippers, it would leave us with little expectation or little cause of hope for the days ahead. There wouldn't be a whole lot of opportunity. There wouldn't be a whole lot of chance for miracles. If all we had to trust in is that which our hands had made or that which our money had purposed, I wouldn't dare stand up here today and tell you to expect big things from that kind of a God or to plan big things for the days ahead. I would take the bar of potential and put it under the carpet this morning if I was talking to a crowd of a bunch of idol worshipers that bowed down to a little dead pygmy object that couldn't hear, see, or save. But I'm not coming today to a crowd of a bunch of idol worshipers that pray to a God that cannot hear or serve a God that cannot see or trust in a God that cannot save or a God that's as dead as last year's Christmas tree. I'm coming to you this morning on behalf of a God that is very real, very alive, and very able to do great and mighty things in our generation. I'm glad God was God in the beginning, but I'm glad he's still God today. The Bible says, I am the Lord and I change not. God is immutable and God is unimpeachable. I can echo what Moody said. We had to make our plans big because God is our partner. Now that might agitate some of you because you wanted to coast through the service and sleep until you get home to take your nap this afternoon. And you can call me a dreamer and say I'm a little bit hyper, but I say let me dream on. I still believe the God of the Bible is God in our generation. I still believe he can sober up a drunk. I still believe he can honest up a thief. I still believe he can make holy people out of harlots. I believe he can make crooked places straight. I believe he can save lost people, send revival to a rebellious generation. He can move the mountain, exalt the valley. Our God is still in the church building business. Make your plans big. God is your partner. If you wanted to come and get 10 steps to have a happy new year, not today. I'm just convinced that God is alive and well. He's the same God we read about in the Bible, and I think he still has some big things planned. I believe God could blow our mind if we just have faith in what God could do. I want to ask you the question this morning, how big are your dreams for God? How fanatical are your plans? How large is your expectation? What is it that you, by faith, want to see happen that cannot happen unless God makes it happen? In days like this, we don't need to drift. We don't need to coast. We don't need to just get by. We need to dream and expect some big things from our God. We call out the idol worshipers for worshiping little dead gods like they're alive, but we worship a real big God like he's dead. 
The idol worshiper prays to a God that cannot hear. Our God can hear. Tell me how big your dreams are, and I'll tell you how big your God is. Tell me how large your vision is. I'll tell you how large your God is. I've said it before, but so many Christians live in this safe realm and not this faith realm. They live in the shallow end of their own comfort zone and never wade out into deep waters with God. They pray safe prayers and plan safe plans and set safe goals. And they do nothing bigger than their own ability or beyond their own means. And everything they see accomplished can be explained by some temporal explanation, my ability, my intellect. And they never really see what God can do. We live on the hem of the garment, not knowing there's much more than that. We're we're satisfied with crumbs from the table as long as we feel safe. But can I say, I don't want to plan like God is my partner, but he will not uphold his end of the bargain. I want to plan like God is my partner and he wants to do great and mighty things still in our day. I understand why folks don't want to dream because it costs to have a dream. It costs to have a vision. It's difficult to go beyond the flesh. If we're not careful, every dream we dream for God will be limited by our own ability. Every plan we construct will be limited by our own power. Every vision that we gather will be set by the arm of flesh so we don't have to lean on the shoulder of omnipotence. And what a shame it'd be for a church to never step out of the realm of safety and walk into the realm of faith. Can I say there'd been no walls of Jericho had they lived in the realm of safety. There'd been no three Hebrews in a fiery furnace had they just lived in the realm of safety. There'd been no rise up and walk had they just lived in that realm of safety. There'd been no Gideon and his 300 had they just lived in that realm of safety. The chorus is not. Our God is so small, so weak, and so tiny. There's not much our God cannot do or can do. That's not what we sing. The song is I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowering Seeds abroad and built the lofty skies. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. I wonder what God might have planned in 2023. Who is it that God might save? Who is it that God might restore? What need is it God might meet? What problem is it God might solve? What prayer is it God might answer? What miracle is it God might perform? This morning, our Bible does not introduce us to some anemic, sickly little God who trembles on his bed, but our Bible shows us a God that created everything out of nothing. He just breathed and everything came into being. He's not up in heaven on crutches, laid up in a sick bed, biting his nails, popping Pepto-Bismol, taking vitamin B12 shots. God is alive and well and in control. He conquered death. He robbed the grave and he's enthroned in eternity around an anthem of holy, holy, holy Lord God. God Almighty, if I know our God, I'd say he'd like to see some big things done for his people. I wouldn't doubt he'd like to see a bunch of people get saved this year. I'd say he'd probably like to see buses filled up with bus riders. I wouldn't doubt that our God would rejoice in seeing church pews that are empty get filled up. I would say God would probably like to see an increase in the enrollment of our Sunday school. I would say God would probably like to see a choir that's so big that we can't fit them in the choir loft. I would say God is interested in blowing out men's prayers so we have to find a bigger venue. I would say God is interested in seeing the giving go up and the praying go up and the joy go up and the victory go up and more ground gained for the glory of God, not just here, but across the nation. I don't believe God is done. And I don't believe we threw out God when we threw out last year's calendar. I believe God still has some things planned for a new year. In 2 Chronicles 7, it tells us Solomon has finished building the temple. Seven years of gathering supplies, perfecting the structure have now come to an end. Think about seven years. It's a lot to invest in this work. 
And now Israel and their king are consecrating the house of God to the God who would inhabit the house. In the opening verses of the text, the Bible says Solomon is ending his dedication prayer. It's amazing what happens after prayer. Not a whole lot gets done before it, but a whole lot can happen after it. In verse 1 through 3, the scripture says God responds to the prayer of Solomon by filling the temple with his glory. Now, I don't know if you went to a New Year's party last night, but let me say this and not be irreverent. Nobody can throw a party like God throws a party. If God shows up, it changes a whole lot of things. I thought about this. David had planned the temple, but it wasn't his glory that filled it. Solomon built the temple, but it was not his glory that filled it. Israel had constructed the temple, but it was not their glory that filled it. It was the glory of God that filled the temple. The Bible says that God himself manifested his presence there in the house of God. The glory of God is so thick that the flesh of the ministers, if you will, could not even get in to perform. They just had to take a back seat to the glory of God. And all that was left for the people to do in verse 3 was to fall down on the pavement and cry out in praise to God, saying, He is good for his mercy endureth forever. I don't know about you, but I don't think we'd have to twist anybody's arm to make a second trip back to church if we had some glory of God fall down in this place like that. I mean, if we saw God move like that, we wouldn't have to buy him an iPad or pass out pizza or give him a goldfish. They'd want to come every time the doors are open. If we could get God to show up and a bunch of people worshiping God and praising God, saying he's the one, he is good, his mercy endureth forever. All that was left was to praise his name. In verse 11, the Bible says, the dedication and the sacrifices have now come to an end. All of the labor, all of the work, all of the anticipation is finished. Now, let me say it again. There's a danger when you finish something. When something ends, the tendency is to rest, rejoice, and if not careful, slowly die. Because what you do is say, well, that was what I lived for. I've accomplished it. And then you cease to live for anything else. The temple's finished. So I wonder, would God have anything else planned for his people? Maybe Solomon wondered, what do I do now? I finished the temple. Maybe Israel thought, now what's going to happen? We finished the temple. The building's done. The project is over. So now what's going to happen? I wonder, should the king just sit back and relax? Should Israel just live off of what God blessed them with yesterday? Was God going to be content to leave it there, show his glory one time, then drift back silently to heaven and mind his own business? What I mean is, is this sufficient? Is it satisfactory? Is that it? Let me say this. If I know God, I bet he still has some big things planned. In fact, you'll find that as soon as the temple was finished, God began to speak. The work was done, but God wasn't done working. In verse 12, and we'll read it here, it tells us the Lord shows up. Look what he says. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. He begins to speak to Solomon as soon as Solomon had finished his part. And then as you move down to verse 13, and then look again in verse 14, I showed you that little word, that little word, if. I said a minute ago, the word if is a conjunction. That means this, if is a word that binds things together. It yokes an action to a reaction. In verse 13, it binds judgment to sin. In verse 14, it binds repentance to revival. If you study your Bible, you'll find that if is what holds verses together. Often it is that which holds these performances and promises together. When I see the word if, it tells me there's a contingency. There's a condition. There's an opportunity, but it's optional whether or not I will walk through the door 
more. But when I read that word if, it tells me, don't quit reading yet. God has more to the story. The verse isn't over. The promise isn't over. God is not through speaking yet. So I've got to read on. So God says, if you sin, I will judge you. Verse 13. But then he said, if you want to get right, I can send revival. It's not over yet. Now you study your Bible, you find that word if all over the scripture. It's like a glue that holds it together. It's like a bridge. Matthew 16, 24. Listen to these verses. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. See, there's more to the story and take up his cross and follow me. John 12, 32. And I, but watch, if I be lifted up, there's more to the story, will draw all men unto me. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God raised me, thou shalt be saved. John 15, 7, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you see it binds it together. On and on, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, more to the story, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So what I'm saying is this, God is advertising to his people that though the work was done, God was not done with his people yet. The final pillar had been set. The last tapestry had been hung, but God was not done. When God says, if, when God says, if my people, he's saying there are more things down the road if you meet the conditions. More power, more promise, more potential, more possibility. Now you work your way through the Bible, and you just go through it. I would say that there's not a Bible character in the scripture that could have written out a script for their life as miraculous and amazing as God wrote for their life. There's not one of them that you could have gone to and said, hey, what are you playing for your life? And they would have written out something as amazing as what God wrote for their life. No way. You could have gone, you go to Adam in the garden. Could you imagine that? Adam just freshly formed there in the garden. The breath of God gave him life and he rises up, go to him and say, what's next, Adam? He, he wouldn't have had plans like that. But if I know God, he had some big things planned through Adam. Same thing true, you go on through the scripture. Think about a man named Noah. You go to Noah and say, Noah, what, what do you have planned for your life? There's no way he would have dreamed or had visions of what God wanted to do. But God had big things planned for his life. Abraham the same. You go to Abraham in that pagan place, wrapped up in his idolatry and say, Abraham, or Abram, what do you plan for your life? There's no way he would have said, I think God's going to make me a great nation, give me a son of promise, and let the world be blessed because of me. There's no way, but God had some big things planned for his life. You go and talk to Joseph, and Joseph, say, Joseph, what do you think? There's no way he had a dream early on, but you know, what in the world? God had big things planned for his life. Moses, the same. Moses, that fugitive on the backside of the desert. What's God going to do through your life? He said, I'm probably going to tend some sheep, take care of my father-in-law's business. That's probably what I'll do. He had no idea that God had planned for his life to raise him up as a deliverer. Same thing's true. Samuel, that young man, or Ruth, that lady, or David, or Daniel, and on through the scripture, you go to that palsied man. What, what do you think God's going to do in your life? He had no idea one day he'd be healed, or a blind man, one day he'd have sight, or Lazarus, one day he'd get resurrected. But can I say, that's just what God does. And I don't know, maybe you're not into it now because you're tired. I don't 
know. But I'll say this. It doesn't change the fact that God has big things planned still yet in our day. I'm not content to coast. I didn't get in this thing to die out. I don't go to church to just maintain or sit on the plateau or be mediocre. Let every other church in the world die. I say we go on for God. Take me to higher ground. New heights with God. Bigger things. Extend the ropes. I mean, new horizons. God can. God is able. But somebody's got to have a desire. Somebody's got to have a hunger. No more. Not just run of the mill. Not just routine. Not just limp design. But marching design for the glory of God. Here's three things, and I'll close. Three things I pray for us for 2023. Number one, have faith to follow God. Have faith. All those months we on Wednesdays talked about faith. Have faith to follow whatever it is God has this year. Without faith, everything's impossible. With faith, anything's possible. In fact, if we, don't have, if we have vision night and all we present to you is stuff that's easy, then it's not vision night. It's business meeting or something. You know what I mean? We can call it something else. Number two, you don't have to have fervor to follow God. Having faith to say, I believe God can do it. It's kind of easier than having fervor to stay with it while he does it. It's one thing to leave Egypt. It's another thing to keep marching and not turn back. Don't quit short of the finish line. Amen. Amen. New Year's resolution, everybody start something. I want to start dieting. I want to start gym. I'm not, not everybody starts something. <laughs> Some people just stay the same. But I'm going to start this, that, or the other. I'm going to start. They don't ever finish. Never. New Year's resolutions are dumb, aren't they? <laughs> Honestly, not one of us here. Has anybody here ever upheld a New Year's resolution? If you raise your hand, we'll know you're a liar. Alter, come on. <laughs> Send her up here. That's, you lied. That's a lie. <laughs> Maybe it was to tell more lies, and you're, you did it. Honestly, those diet fat, it's too expensive. And plus, the food tastes like cardboard. Nobody's going to do that. They're not going to do it. It's easy to start something, hard to finish something. Have faith to go with God, but you have fervor to follow through with it. Then one more thing. We're going to have to have fortitude to stand for God. Because here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. Most of Christianity is going to hate a church that dares to trust God for big things. If you want, Bear Lincoln said, if you want everybody to love you, be just as sorry as they are. He said, don't have nothing, don't know nothing, don't do nothing, and everybody will love you. But you let somebody dare to be like Daniel or say, Joseph, I've, I, I got a dream. Here's what God's laid on my heart. People are going to hate you for it. That's all right. It's fine. But you're going to have to have fortitude to say, you know what? I don't care about the world's opinion in this thing or what others say cannot be done. I'm just going to have enough faith to believe God could still do it. I don't care about the politics. I don't care about the climate. I don't care about the economy or spiritual apathy or the drift or the abnormal norms of our day. God is on his throne. You talk to a little boy that almost got beat to death by his drunk father, what God would do with his life. And he'd say, probably nothing. I'll probably be a drunk. But God saved old J. Frank Norris. You talk to a little fellow who never even got through eighth grade, went to work at a shoe store named D.O. Moody. What's God going to do with your life? I don't know what God do. You ask R.A. Torrey. He was an infidel, a professor. A lost man. 
God saved him and used him to spark some of the greatest revivals. Bobby Robertson made this statement. You've probably heard, he might have said it here. I don't know if he said it here, but he said this. If we would just get usable, I believe God would wear us out for his glory. I read that was like, whoop. If we just get usable. You go see that little cinder block, white little cinder block church house at these crossroads in North Carolina in the middle of what used to be cornfields and things right there. That church only had like 100 people and then split. Started out in a tent revival. You used to go see that little building that could fit on this platform. And you go ask that backwards country fellow, what do you think God's going to do? He probably said, I reckon I'll probably run about 100 people. No telling what God will do. What could God do here? You say, well, what God's done here. Yeah, that's fine, but what could God do here? If I know God, He's probably still got some big things planned. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.